Welcome back to the Corner of Story and Game. This is a podcast that explores the interesting space between storycraft and game design. My name is Gerald Ford and I'll be your host. I'm a lifelong gamer and writer. This week, we have Jonathan Gilmore at the table. Jonathan has been working on board games for almost a decade now, but in those short 10 years, he has amassed credits on 58 games. He is best known as one of the designers of Dead of Winter, but he has worked on many board games, and even some tabletop role-playing games. Jonathan, thank you for taking the time to chat with me. Oh, well, thank you so much for having me. This is so great. Right on. Well, before we uh, really rip into it, uh, I'm sure you've been asked dozens of times, but how did you get into board games? What, what was the journey for you from your previous career into the world of board games? Um, so career-wise, um, you know, I had just gotten back into hobby games. You know, I grew up playing Dungeons and Dragons, uh, Second Edition, Magic the Gathering, um, and you know, other stuff like that growing up. Um, and I, you know, I really loved it. And I had just gotten back into it with my uh, partner at the time. And um, I was working, I was doing industrial robotics, working at a factory. Yeah. Um, which was fun, but like incredibly creatively stifling. Like I wasn't, I wasn't, I'm, I mean, I was doing some problem solving, but not like creating fun things. Like, right. Um, and I had grown up, you know, like being artistic. I spent a lot of time in art class. I liked making things. And growing up, I'd always want to be a video game designer. So I had started, um, because I had a programming background, I started working on a couple of video games. Uh, and I was like, this is way too hard. I don't want to do this. Um, I was like, but I think I can make a board game out of these ideas. So I you know, started drawing them up and coming up with some board games. And I released two or three as uh, free print and play games on Board Game Geek. So I'd released one called Pocket Dungeon that's still there. It's a, uh, a game that I had designed uh, as I, I was calling it a stealth game. So you disguise it as a, a pad of, uh, you disguise it as a to-do list and it's designed to be played in an office. So like you can play it during meetings and stuff. And instead <laughs> nice. of dice, it uses a, a pad of post-it notes with numbers written in the corner for your randomizer. So like you can play it with all office stuff. Um, and the response to that was really, really good. And I was like, great, this is what I want to do. I want to make some things that people are going to play. So, um, you know, I started working on more games and I was getting... Uh, you know, pretty far with what became Dead of Winter, and I was actually going to release that as a free print-and-play game as well. Like That that was probably about three months away from just being a free game on Board Game Geek that you could download oh, and wow. build. Um, so I uh, we had started hosting this monthly game day, and friends were, you know, friends were showing up and inviting their friends, and it was getting bigger and bigger. And one month, um, Isaac Vega, my co-designer for Dead of Winter, happened to be there. And I was like, well, do you mind taking a look at this? Like, I don't, I, w I had no interest in getting that published. I was like, can you just tell me if you think this is fun or not? And we played it and got to the end. And he was like, this is really great. Like, would you like to co-design it? Or can I just like take the things that I like out of it and make a different game? And I was like, well, co-designing sounds great. So uh, so then we set down the path. And then you know, he was working for Plaid Hat at the game. So they were at the time. So they were the first people that we pitched it to. And uh, they loved it. So, you know, we went down the road of getting it published and that took off. And um, as it took off, like I was still working in the factory and eventually they found out that I was making money through a different venue and they consider that a risk for some reason. Uh, so they fired me because they found out I was making money elsewhere. What? 
Um, but that was the kick I needed. Like I wasn't going to quit that job. It had insurance. It had everything else. Um, and, you know, we had just uh, passed the Affordable Health Care Act over here. So I was like, well, you know, I don't have to work in a factory anymore. Like I'm making enough with this that I could afford insurance for us. Like we have this chance for me to chase this dream. Like, you know, I talked to my uh, my ex-wife and I was like, can we you know, do this? And she was like, yeah, let's let's try it. So, you know, I went down the path of designing more stuff and doing it full time. That's really, really cool, man. Yeah. So I often ask people what was the pivotal moment along their journey where it led them down that path. It sounds like getting fired might have been one of them, but is there other pivotal moments that you look back at? Well, I mean, playing with Isaac too, right? Because I was just going to release everything I did as a free print and play. I wasn't right, doing right. it for a career. I had I had no interest in any of that. I, and I wasn't doing it, you know, for accolades or anything else. Like, I, I was very lucky, like, when um, when Pocket Dungeon came out, it was nominated for a Golden Deep that year. So, like, it actually, like, almost won an award, which was pretty huge. And I was yeah. like, oh, this is fun. I'll, I'll keep doing it. But that was pretty pivotal, too. Looking back, are there any games from your childhood that jump out at you that, you know, this was imprinted on me? Uh, oh, lots of them. Like, I've always chased that experience of that very first game of Magic the Gathering that I had. Like, I've never played a game where I felt as much like a wizard as when I cracked open my first starter deck. Oh, yeah. And sat down with somebody else and just had to deal with the random cards. Um, so, like, that really showed me, like, the experience that games could be. And I mean, the other big one is uh, Dungeons and Dragons. Like I, I grew up in a very rural area, so I didn't have anybody to teach it to me. So A, it taught me how horrible a rule book Dungeons and Dragons is. Like <laughs> if you want to learn how to play a game, that's the worst one uh, to pick. But B, it, I mean, it taught me the experience and the value of storytelling. So I really liked games where, you know, you could tell a story in. And that's, you know, I generally try to design for experiences. So I think those two were very formative to me. Nice. Um, making a move from a industrial background into the board game industry, was there any challenges that you had to face? I mean, I feel like it gave me a very strong uh, skill set because my, I did, while I was there, you know, I was lucky I did a lot of training in um, problem solving. Um, like I learned the Kepner Trago, um, decision analysis, problem analysis, potential problem analysis system. So I think it really gave me a leg up when I'm designing and developing to, you know, A, identify problems and their root causes, B, you know, come up with some potential fixes, and then C, look at where those potential fixes may fail and eliminate the, you know, the most likely to fail ones. So, you know, I can kind of close that circle of development a lot faster than some other people can. It's a handy set of skills to bring with you. It is. I, I don't think most people realize how much, how less math and more problem solving game design is. <laughs> um, like, I love the math portion of it, but like the math part is easy. The part is the harder part is when you have to like break math and be like, this doesn't feel right, but it's mathematically correct. How do we get that uh, experience correct? Well, that kind of segues into a question I had later on is how much does the consideration of story enter into your personal design process so for me it's really really important um because you know a lot of designers will say they're it's their um theme first or mechanics first but for me it's all about the experience like i i consider myself an experience first designer 
And everything has to support that. You know, with Data Winner, it was making sure that, you know, the actions made sense from a standpoint of what you were doing and making sure that, like, mechanically, the action supported that theme. Like, even little things like cleaning out the trash, like, that's not a fun thing to do, <laughs> but it makes sense and it's important and, right. you know, it factors into the game. So I really like trying to identify little things like that and and bring them in. And I, I really like, I was really inspired by Minecraft as well, because I think it's amazing... And, and I'm talking about like beta Minecraft less yeah. now, but like back in the day, like you just started the game in a forest with nothing, no tooltips, no yep. tutorial, it was no fun. story, but you have some of the best adventures in that game. And like, there were so many moments where I had stories that I told other afterwards that I was like, oh, like the emergent storytelling is really, really important too. Like giving the players a skeleton to hang their story on is almost more important than having like writing or adventure cards or the crossroad cards. Like, Oh, for that, sure. That being able to do fun stuff is the more important thing. Right on. Those stories that come out of the game experience that weren't designed into the game itself are, those are some of the best stories. Yeah. So looking back before we move on from the history stuff, if you could talk to young Jonathan before he started out on the journey into board games, is there any advice you'd give yourself? Oh, I mean, it's, it's tough. And, and I'm really, I'm really proud of everything I've done in my career. You know, I started out from the beginning with an eye towards trying to help other people and lift up other people, you know, with me and use it. Uh, I think, I don't know about advice I would give myself. I, probably not to beat myself up too much about like negative feedback and negative player experiences. Yeah. I'm lucky that dead of winter was my first one because people were very vitrolic about it. Like people either <laughs> absolutely loved it or absolutely hated it. There was no middle ground. And I, I really think that helps make a game successful. Like if everybody's just like, eh, yeah. nobody's going to talk about it, but if people hate it and people love it, like there's going to be arguments, there's going to be a lot of discussion and, you know, those one ratings hurt at first. And it took me a while to, like, develop a thicker skin about being in the, you know, the public discourse in board games and, you know, showing up. And you know, I've, I've had lots of good interactions, too. And even the people that, you know, started out with huge problems, like, I, I like talking to them and discussing and see how I can address it in future designs. So I think, you know, more just be willing to listen to players and what they want and, and not worry about the process. Like I'm a big advocate of the fail faster design philosophy. And, you know, I've really honed those skills over the years. So, you know, I think that helps develop that thicker skin too. Nice. Nice. There's a tougher question I like to ask because it has good lessons baked into it. What would you say has been your biggest failure as a board game designer? What did you learn from that? Ooh. Um, I think, you know, there's a, there's a couple and some of them I have to kind of talk about in like hand wavy ways. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, just for, you know, legal or professional. I, yeah, I get you. Yeah. I think, I think I would have been more careful about some of the jobs I took on early on. Um, because, you know, being aware of who you're partnering with and, you know, what their reputation is and what kind of effect it has on you is, is super important. Like, working with companies that are awesome to work with and, you know, 
pay royalties on time and everything else is is the added stress like you know i'm already surviving quarter to quarter right like i only get paid four times a year right right it's already hard enough like if you have a job that you get paid bi-weekly like (laughs) budgeting for three months is a nightmare good luck um and like when a publisher's late a month that's just an even bigger wrench um you know so i think i think that would have been important and like i would have looking back i probably would have made sure that i maintained more control over some of the designs like i i had a game come out and they had a uh comic book editor edit the rule book and not like a game editor and they made a bunch of changes to the rule book right before it came out and didn't approve them through me oh and the game came out and it was unplayable like and that yeah like at the end of the day, I know that I'm my product. Like I make all these games, but I'm trying to build up a name for myself. And anything that sets me back on that, like you're you're only as good as your last failure in this industry. So, you know, just being careful about relationships and yeah. things like that. That's a hard lesson to learn. It is. On the flip side, what's the greatest compliment you've ever had on your work? Oh man, I think uh it's probably uh the year at gen con where a full group of like 10 people came up in dead of winter cosplay dressed up as their favorite characters with like a pet sparky like that to me i'll never forget and anytime somebody like the greatest compliment is always anytime somebody comes up and says what a game meant to them because i can relate like i've got these games that impacted my life in huge ways so i love i absolutely love hearing very cool. Very cool. So apart from board games, you also worked on Kids on Bikes or Hunter Entertainment, which mm-hmm. is a tabletop role-playing game. What was that experience like? Uh, it was it was fantastic. I you know, co-designed that with Doug Lewandowski, who was a, a good friend before co-designing it. And um, you know, just it started out that we had both watched the first like two episodes of Stranger Things. And then immediately went online to post about it. Yeah. And he posted like, yo, who wants to design a Stranger Things board game? And I was like, Doug, I sent him a message. I was like, Doug, I'm already working on a Stranger Things board game. I started it yesterday. I was like, do you want to do like a Stranger Things RPG? And he's like, that sounds fantastic. So, um, you know, we did that. We did all the work. We found Heather, who's an incredible artist, like one of my favorite artist her work is standout and so different from everything else um you know we we had a lot of inspiration like i i love paper girls you know and we have all these um you know kids on bikes themed things growing up so um it was really it was really fun um process wise because you know a it was a different thing like i played a lot of rpgs before and i'd put like rpg esque mechanics into my things and i designed a couple other rpgs that never got released um but like the the process of it was super fun and it was so fun to try to figure out how to you know play test an rpg at metatopia where you have like a two-hour window to play test things so like segmenting it out and just play testing like you know we're gonna do world creation now or we're gonna do the session zero or we're gonna do character creation uh, is it, it was a fun challenge to try to piece all those out and figure out how to how to really test them. And I mean, it, dream come through. We were going to self-publish it. We were like, nobody wants an RPG about this. Like, we we had Heather's art. We had already paid her for it. 
um, and I was walking through Gen Con and I bumped into Ivan and I was like, hey, Ivan, we, you know, we've never uh, met on, I mean, we never met in person, but we've talked online a bunch. I was like, I know you're on your way to a meeting. I'm on my way to a meeting. I just want to say hi. And he's like, hey, like, what are you working on? What are you excited about? And I was like, well, I'll just, I, I showed him the cover to kids on bikes. Right. And he was like, don't show this to anyone else this show. <laughs> and let's have a discussion as soon as we get home. Nice. Yeah. Very cool. So in that experience, working on a tabletop role-playing game, what are some of the key differences from like a craft, actual designing and writing point of view between tabletop role-playing and board games, in your opinion? So uh, one of the biggest ones is that I just, well, I already knew it, um, but it really drove it home that I hate writing rule books. <laughs> and RPGs are just very, very big rule books. Yep. Um, so if you don't enjoy writing rule books, don't design an RPG or... <laughs> partner with somebody like Doug who loves writing rule books and we'll do that part for you. There you go. Um, you know, mechanics wise, like we really um, dug into like a addressing some of the shortcomings we feel that a lot of RPGs have, like we really like mar modern stuff, like uh, powered by the apocalypse. You know, there's so many great systems now. Yeah. Um, but even those, like we really wanted to have the session zero teach the people how to role play um, in a way that makes it super accessible to players who have never played an RP or role playing game before. Nice. You know, things like speaking in your character's voice, like when you're answering the questions and, you know, um, just little things that we can do. And the, the other thing was we really wanted to approach it because all my board game designs, I kind of like snuck in role playing game mechanics on this one. I was like, well, let's make like the skills and abilities like very, board gaming mechanical rather than like oh swimming gives me plus one whenever i swim right and climbing gives me plus one when i climb like why don't we make those do really cool things that are super fun and give the players spotlight moments so like exploring that mechanical overlap was a lot of fun too it's clever clever stuff thank you so i mean i i, I know i've told this story before one of my other favorite things mechanically is like doug and i were talking about how in um stranger things D&D is kind of like a character, right? And in a lot of these kids on bike stories, like there's always some kind of group activity that they all do. And we're like, we really want to like do a nod to classic role playing. And Doug uh, at first was like, what if we put Thacko in the game? <laughs> and I was like, no. <laughs> uh, but then we were brainstorming and we came up with the idea to make the stats, the polyhedrals. So like even even the bad ideas lead to the good ideas a lot right. of times and like you know um, saying yes to a lot of things we, when we were talking about like exploding dice we we're like oh well they can either you know they can we had a bunch of limitations and I was like why do we have a limitation why not just let a die explode as many times as they want to yeah that's cool though and add some yeah. element of excitement yeah absolutely you should have put Thacko in though I <laughs> know it's the worst <laughs> system. I don't need a math problem to attach somebody. Although now I want to do an RPG where you have to do math to do things. That sounds like an interesting challenge. <laughs> so you've also done board game adaptations of classic video games, uh, Asteroids and Centipedes, and one other that I can't remember right now. Um, uh, we did Asteroids, Centipedes, and Missile Command. That's it. Yes. When you were working on those adaptations, were you looking just to kind of replicate the general feeling and the the mechanics or were you trying to bake anything more in there? I'm curious about that process. 
Uh, no, I really, I really wanted to approach it like um, from a different angle than most people would. And that's kind of one of my driving forces all the time is I like to do the unexpected thing. Um, and like asteroids is probably, and asteroids unfortunately never got released. That was probably the closest to like a straight adaptation. Um, but it had this ridiculously fun mechanic where you played the asteroids and a spaceship to make it multiplayer. Oh, wow. And you were trying to hit the other players with your asteroids <laughs> and trying to shoot the asteroids. But it was a, a dexterity game. So you're like flicking around the table. And when you shoot, you flick an asteroid or you flick and hit the asteroid. And they were like two part like cups with cubes inside of them so yep. that when you shot them, like little pixels busted out on the table and those were the hit points like you actually got to see the chunks of asteroid falling off that'd be cool um so that was super fun but the rest of them like i really wanted to do honor to the background of them because I, I feel like a lot of ip based games and i i don't mean any insult to the people designing them but a lot of times they're the the lowest barrier to entry like you're just taking the thing you're adapting it you're making it work on a tabletop and there's no surprises. Yeah, so yeah. with Missile Command, like I started to read about the history of Missile Command and the designer actually designed it as a anti-war thing. Um, and it never like came out in the gameplay or anything else. No. And you know, back then there wasn't a lot of story in games, but like he he started it as that. So like we wanted to make it like a very zero sum, like war is bad like bluffing game right, right, that right, still right. kind of honored that. And um, with Centipede, the original designer was female. So like, it was super important to me to, you know, get some diverse designers on that one um, and, you know, make the Centipede game that wasn't, wasn't totally expected. So, you know, um, having the Centipedes working against each other was a, a fun challenge. It's fun to see some, uh, some of the games that are developed as adaptations of video games can turn out so cool. Like, uh, Roxley Games, uh, Super Motherload, like that was, yeah. uh, that's a fantastic adaptation. Mm -hmm. Um, but you did mention that you once wanted to work in video games. Um, is that something that you've ever like considered going after now? I mean, now that you've got a name and you wouldn't have to do all the boring coding stuff. And I mean, I won't lie. I've, I've approached people over the years, um, growing up, like one of my, uh, heroes was Tim Schafer. Like I really love Double Fine Games. I mean, I love the type of games he's done. I was yeah, a huge yeah. fan of Secret Monkey Island growing up, like everything he's done. And um, I got a chance to hang out with him one time and we you know, started talking online and being friends. And I was like, hey, can I pitch you an idea? And he's like, are you useful for years? <laughs> um, he's like, this isn't the way it really works. And I was like, I know, I know, but like, I can't <laughs> not take my shot when right. I have it. Yep. Um, yeah, and I've, I've approached a few people. It's it's a hard industry to break into. And like, I would love to do what Eric Lang did with, um, I can't remember the name of the game right now, but he did like an online dueling tile lane game um, that they did like a, an implementation of. I can't remember the name of it off the top of my head and I'm sorry. I'm trying to blank uh, too. But yeah, like I've always wanted to do that and I would love to make that connection. I'm really bad at the networking and biz dev side of the business. Um, gotcha. I'm socially awkward. I don't like <laughs> talking to people. I don't like communication. I, and I like communication, don't get me wrong, but I hate like forced communication. Like yeah. I hate following up on emails. 
But usually if I send somebody an email and they never contact me again, I'm like, they didn't want to contact me. It's fine. So it makes those kind of things. I, I wish I was good at the selling and networking part of the industry. Yeah. Let's talk about the big boy in the room, Dead of Winter. Uh, yeah. Amazing game, very popular. Personally, though, I love the characters. And there's a lot of them now with all the various expansions and promo packs. In your opinion, how important is it, or was it, to flesh out the personalities, the backgrounds, all the little nuances to all these characters? We always felt like it was super important, even from like my first design. So when when I first started working on it, um, you only played one character. You didn't have a group of survivors. That was one of the things that Isaac brought to the table. And your dice were trying to get your hit points. So it made more sense to make the dice each a survivor and you know do things like that. Um, but like from the start, it was super important that all of the uh, you know survivors really felt interesting and distinct. Um, I think I don't think I've ever told this story before. You might be the first person to hear this, but there is a a secret origin to the characters in Dead of Winter. Oh, um, because we we were sitting down and you know I had like eight characters in the game because you only needed five to play and um or maybe 20 oh however many and uh isaac was like we need a group of like 30 people that look like they belong together um so we just took a cast photo of lost and like cut their heads out to put on the tokens for each character and then we came up with names for each one of them and then we came up with jobs based on what they were so like the only reason that Sparky's in the game is because there was a dog in the cast photo, and like uh, Forrest, the mall Santa, is because that like one old guy looked like a mall Santa. So like <laughs> that's his job. He's a mall Santa. So all all the characters are from Lost in the first game. That's fantastic. Thankfully, yeah. the game is way better than the show turned out to be. <laughs> yeah, I mean, at that point, the show wasn't quite over yet, so we didn't know how bad things were going to end. But um, yeah, the we felt like it was super important to make them cohesive and make them feel alive. Like, and we really, we did a lot of research on reading up about like the psychology of survival situations. You know, we, we both read a couple different books on it, articles. And um, one of the things that we talked about is like, we felt like there had to be high stakes in this game to make you care about your characters. Yeah. Um, and you know, it's kind of a note that we took from like George R. R. Martin, or um, I was reading the Culture series by Ian M. Banks at the time. And uh, both of those are books where, like, you learn early on that anybody can die. So, like, you know, just like real people in our life, you know, we want people to feel precious about their group and be like, oh, I could lose these people at any time, so I have to be careful. And when a loss does happen, like, we wanted it to feel impactful. So I think, you know, making them feel alive and, and have backgrounds and jobs and crossword cards, you know, a little bit about them and putting them in interesting situations. And even the like secret goals do a lot towards letting you build that story. I, I remember one game um, on the, it was on the actual published version of it because I played it a bunch after it came out too. Um, one of my friends had uh, two female survivors and he had the entire time like built this story up in his head that he wasn't telling anybody at the table. 
And his secret objective was to make sure there were five uh, five characters dead at the end of the game. And the very last turn of the game, there were four, and he went where another player was and like murdered their character to, so that his secret, like he wasn't the betrayer, right. but he needed, and he like did things to raise morale so that everyone wouldn't lose. Um, and then at the end of the game, he had this really big moment. He's like, let me tell you the story of what just happened. He's like, you know, my two characters were in love, um, but they were, you know, harassed and not treated well by the town. And like that, that farmer had like assaulted one of them. And that was the reason that he went in and finished them. But they just wanted to see people from the town that had been mean to them die. So like with absolutely no prompting, he just took the pieces and made that story. And I think that it wouldn't happen without all those little details. Dude, that is so cool. Like those stories that develop that those give me goosebumps, man. That that's why we play. Like that's... absolutely. And that's that's when I knew we were onto something with the prototype. When when people would play a bad looking prototype with no art and you know, just uh you know, really basic graphic design, and they would talk about it like the next week. Yeah. And tell stories about it. I was like, this is this is what I want. Yeah. So you've worked as a freelance game designer and developer for almost a decade now, but in the last year, you've also taken a day job at Maestro Media. Mm -hmm. What is that? So, um, you know, I've done, I did development at Pandasaurus in the past, and I, I've kind of done freelance development over the years, but with um, Maestro, you know, I came on board because we were doing um, a lot more games and we really wanted, and we're doing mostly IP-based games. Um, you know, they had done the Binding of Isaac, um, and we just did the Kickstarter for Sally Face, which um, is based on a really good video game. And, um, you know, I came on board with the intention of making their games great. Like, we had a discussion, and, and, you know, I played a lot of the games during the onboarding, and I was like, these games are good, but, like, we need to release great games that people will play for a long time, even after, like, the magic of the IP is worn, worn off. And that's how you make, you know, evergreens is by making sure that it games great. So like my day job is, you know, mostly, you know, looking at our upcoming games, working with the other people on the team to develop them and then leading mass play testing. Nice. So like we put all the games through a mass play testing system now, and I've been developing that, you know, we get like 50 to a hundred groups playing it. We get hundreds and hundreds of plays. I take all that data and you know really drill down on you know fixing any issues making sure there's no glaring issues and really trying to make the games shine i'm not i'm not doing any of the design i'm just i really enjoy taking other designers work and helping them get it across the finish line yeah um because i don't i don't need the accolades anymore i'm you know i'm doing it because of my love of the the industry so you know making other people's games great and getting them accolades is way more important to me now nice it kind of sounds like your career has come full circle, like you're applying things that you learned in the industrial world and probably processes, and you're now using them in a setting to produce games. Yeah, yeah. I think I think it really has. Like, it's really a mix of all of those things. You know, I, I enjoy coming up with systems, whether it's mechanical systems in a game or playtesting systems to, you know, put the games through. Like, I, I really like that system building. Nice. So we've come to kind of the the kernel of this whole podcast, my whole social experiment, why I talk to wonderful people like yourself. And that is, in my opinion, there exists a magical space, a sacred circle in the middle of where 
board games, video games, tabletop role-playing, acting, theater, all these things meet, and all these people can hang out on mutual ground. What, in your opinion, makes that space special? Why can all these people come together and just naturally be part of the same family? Mm-hmm. That's, that is a fantastic question. And that's you know one of the things that made me really excited to talk. And I, I probably don't have anything grand or incredible to say about this, but like for me, it's really that connection you have when you get to experience a story with somebody else. Like whether it's, you know, sitting at the movie theater and watching the latest MCU movie with my kids or, you know, watching a TV show. Um, I'm, I'm weird. Like I rarely ever rewatch TV shows or movies. Like I'm usually a one and done unless I'm showing it to someone else. Like that's the exciting thing for me is getting somebody to watch, uh, you know, everything, everywhere all at once for the first time. Like I'll watch them for two hours. <laughs> um, and I, and I think that's like the really magic, space there is you know letting us escape our reality and do do something incredible yeah i've always i've always been a voracious book reader growing up um you know comic books anything i could get into and you know i think it's always it's just i love a good story and i think most of us do like humanity's been storytellers since the beginning like you know drawing on tape walls like sitting around the campfire it's the thing we want and now we're at a time where with video games and board games it's much more interactive than it's ever been but i think that's just such that that magic circle is so incredible well my follow-up to that and you've started to touch on it is why do you think story is important i think it's because we don't know everything and we want to, but because there's so much unknown in the universe and the world that I think telling stories helps us explore that. Like, and there's a lot of people that love, you know, historical nonfiction and, you know, they'll read that voraciously too. But I think a lot of times, you know, whether it's sci-fi or a board game, it's, it's exploring something different. We, you know, want to see, you know, even if it's listening to music or, you know, reading a book, like we want to see how other people live. And I think that that a lot of times is what fuels our empathy as a human. And I think that for me, like I want to experience all those different things, you know, A, so I can kind of experience the full spectrum of life and, and B, because sometimes, you know, I want to be, you know, uh, an elf in the woods. And uh, you know, sometimes I want to see what a zombie apocalypse is like and yeah. what the stories are. In a safe way, in a safe space. Exactly. Yeah. And I mean, there's so much more we can do with it. And I think that, you know, going forward, like serious games are the hardest games I found to work on. Oh. They're the second hardest. Children's games are the hardest <laughs> games to work on. I don't understand why. I have never successfully designed a kid's game and I've tried a bunch and I have kids, so I don't know why I can't do it. But the serious games and the games that make us look through somebody else's lens when they, when they do it in a way that's proper, it's amazing. Like I, I've made a few serious type games, you know, one about relationships and it's kind of like a push your left dice game. And, you know, you can get more points by maintaining more relationships, but it's harder to, and it doesn't really define relationships, it's friendships or whatever you want it to be in the game. But then I play something like um, Nyctophobia, which uh, Pandasaurus um, designed. And the designer of that, Catherine Stipple, uh, 
is amazing. She she was 18 when she designed the game. Uh, she designed it because her uncle um, had a vision disability, uh, was vision impaired, and she wanted to communicate that A, design a game that he could play, and B, communicate that experience to somebody else. So if you haven't seen it, it's a game about being lost in the woods with a serial killer. Oh, wow. And one player is a serial killer. All the other players wear blackout glasses, so they can't see anything at all. And they have to navigate by touch on the board. So like you start your turn with the killer putting your finger on your piece. Yeah. And then you have to like feel around for the woods around you. Like they're all 3D bits. And I was like, this is the most incredible, beautiful experience I've ever seen. Because A, when you're there, like you feel that feeling of being lost in the woods with no idea what to do. And when you're done, you're like, I didn't realize what it was like to have a vision impairment. And now I I, I still don't know what it's really like, but at least I have a little bit of empathy for it that I didn't have before. It, It opens the door a little bit so you can feel a little bit. Yeah. That kind of it kind of opens a, a much deeper line of that we're going to wander down for two seconds here. Great. Okay, so storytelling, in, in my opinion and in a lot of studies, is an evolutionary tool humans have that have allowed us to become who we are, allowed us to create society and teach youth, um, you know, stay away from the saber-toothed tiger and fire is bad. And so that's where story came from. But in this day and age, when our problems and challenges are so much more complex. Does it fall to us, the, the the storytellers, the artists, to try and create things that can make society better? Where is our role in that or responsibility in there? I mean, I think it's nice. I think I think creating anything is its own validation. Like any any story is enough validation. I don't think everything has to teach us a lesson all the time. Like escapism is still good. Yeah. And, yeah you know, um, self-care is important. So I think, you know, when we enable people to do that, like, I still think there's a lot of value in that. But I, I love games that make me think about stuff and try to teach a lesson. I think, you know, like I said, they're probably the hardest to make. But when when someone can do it like nyctophobia in a way that, you know, you play it and you're just really impacted, I think, I think more of us should do that. Yeah. That's a worthy goal, at least. Yeah. Well, buddy, we are coming to the end. Uh, this is the part where I usually like to throw a quick, couple of quick fire questions at you. You don't have to think too hard or too long unless you want to. Feel free to wander down a rabbit hole. All right. So here we go. What's your favorite game to play these days? It could be board or video game or tabletop. Uh, sure. I'll do one of each. Oh. So um, I've been playing a lot of Dice Realms with my partner. It's probably one of our favorite games right now. Um, I would, I would say the, like one sentence pitch is it's dominion, the dice game, (laughs) uh, you get to build your dice, uh, you know, build up your civilization. There's a random setup every time. Um, it's a lot of fun. Uh, so we've been playing that a lot and video games. I'm slowly, I have less time for video games than I'd like, but I'm slowly working my way through midnight suns. Oh, nice. Um, I think it was probably one of the best games that came out last year, but I don't think most people appreciate it. Um, I'm a huge comic book fanboy, so I'm I'm very happy to just go to book club with Blade, and you know, hang out with Magic and all these other characters. Like, nice. if Spider Man wants to go hang out by the pool for an hour, I'm there. Um, and the 
if, if you haven't seen it, it is a tactical game by the designers of XCOM. Um, but it has a card-based system where you construct a deck for each character. And then when you take three characters out on a mission, it mashes up their decks and you're drawing the cards and that's the action system of the game. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. It's super great. That sounds like a lot of fun. What are you uh, reading these days? Ooh, not enough. Um, I am working my way through James A. Taster's book, uh, his first book. I'm not to classic stripes yet. Um, but when I have time, I've been reading that. Um, comic book wise, I just started reading. I have it here beside my desk so I can look. Uh, the Ice Cream Man. Oh. This has been pretty fun. Uh, it's really unique because it doesn't tell a consistent story. Like each issue is just one like little horror story that shares the central character, the ice cream man. Interesting. Um, and I fell in love with something's chilling the children. So I read all that recently and that's been fantastic as well. Right on. I'm going to add both those to my list. Yeah. I think Netflix just signed to do an adaptation of something's killing the children. So I'm really excited about that. Oh, so now I got to catch up. Yeah. <laughs> all right. If you could sit down at a gaming table with four people from any time in history, alive or dead, who would they be and what would you play? Oh, boy. Uh, this is tough. I mean, so live, my partner, 100%. Like, I I very much love that my partner is super passionate about um, board games. We're getting, we're getting married later this year, and instead of a wedding, we're having a convention nice. with a wedding in the middle of it. <laughs> so we're doing, we rented uh, a hotel for three days, the, the space. So, like, we have a three-day-long convention with our wedding on Saturday. Oh, that's the dream uh, right there. Yeah, it's so awesome. Uh, she's the best. And um, so she'd probably be pretty one. And I would play anything with her. Like, there's never been a bad gaming experience. Like, we, we're we both Omni gamers. So from party games to, like, big heavy Euros, like, we're we're there. Nice. Um, you know, probably my dad. He passed away when I was pretty young. Um, so I think, you know, getting to sit down and play with him, um, as long as he wasn't, like, a creepy zombie. That'd be fun. Um, who man, I I would probably pick James A. Taster. He's one of my favorite comedians, um, and I think he's just brilliant. I think he would be hilarious to play an RPG with. Cool. Um, so I'd probably pick like a a real loose storytelling game, like The Quiet Year or Fiasco or something ridiculous. Nice. Um, and then the fourth one. I mean, I'm gonna. I'm going to say the amalgam of my children, like any one of my four kids, I would, I love, I love when they want to play a game. Nice. Uh, they're, they've all grown up enough that they're way too cool. Um, but my, my oldest son moved out a year and a half ago for college. And when he came home, he wanted to play board games. So nice. like, that was exciting. <laughs> I'd be like, Oh, he, he's come back around. There you go. He went to college and people are like, you're Jonathan Gilmore's son. And suddenly board games <laughs> I don't think are cool he's ever again. gotten that. No. <laughs> It'll happen someday, Matt. Someday. <laughs> so in your opinion, what does the future of bold board games hold? You know, I, I'm always excited for that next step. I think there's so much potential um, for games that are app enabled in clever ways. Like I think Mansions of Madness and Descent um, Legends in the Dark that use an app to like run the game are they're both perfect tens with, without a doubt. I think they're both two of the best games ever designed. Nice. 
Um, and I very, very, uh, I have almost no complaints about them. I think that's why they're perfect tens to me. So I, you know, I really want to say that. And, you know, I'm just, I'm excited as more and more people get into the industry and we're seeing more diverse voices, you know, telling stories that aren't represented right now. So, you know, I, I'm excited for more people to start telling their stories and explore themes and, you know, mechanics that we haven't seen interspersed a lot. So right on more good games, I hope is the answer. I think so. I think there's, there's lots coming, man. Yeah. I don't think they can get worse. I mean, they could, but <laughs> if, if we started doing microtransactions like video games, that yeah, might make it worse. Yeah. NFTs get into board games. That's it. I'm out. There has been so much talk about it and oh. I absolutely hate it. Uh, I turned down a, very very lucrative development job on one of them last year because they were going to pay me like 10 grand to develop this nft based game and like some of the stuff they were doing was really really cool with every card having its own blockchain address like competitively it tracked the win-loss record of all the cards and your cards like individually leveled up as you played them like in the system so there was some neat stuff there, but it, I mean, it's stuff we could do with other technology that isn't yeah. destroying the environment. That functionality is a cool idea for sure. Make yeah. that into a different app or something. <laughs> exactly. Use a little AR so you can scan the cards and then track it in a database and away you go. Yeah. All right, man. Well, um, that about wraps it up. It's time to set the fire low and head out the door. But before we go, do you have any current news, projects, things you want to boost or talk about or pump up or what's Jonathan up to? Well, I mean, you know, definitely keep an eye on the stuff from Maester Media because, you know, I'm going to have my fingers in a lot of those pies and making sure that they're great games. Um, I'm working on two very, very exciting IP games that we haven't announced yet that we should be announcing in the next couple months. Um, And I think they're going to be big, big, big hits. Um, I had collab on Kickstarter last year, which is, and you can uh, late pledge for it still now. Um, it should be delivering in the next couple months. Nice. Um, it is a worker placement game about being a down on your luck mad scientist who can't afford their own laboratory. <laughs> so you share a co-working space with the other players. So that's why it's called collab. Um, and it's, it's competitive, but we're calling it a collaborative board game because when you send your minions out to work because it's a co-working space, everybody else gets to boss them around too. <laughs> so like, as you're sending your resources out there, the other players uh, get to use them too. So that's the kind of story that's baked into the back end of a game that makes you stop and go, okay, I got to check this game out. That's, that's yeah. different. And the, the production on it's amazing. The miniatures are like this big, <laughs> the, uh, your minions um, have a little spot and their hands are like holding the dice that you send out with them. So oh, they're like cool. carrying your dice around. It's so cute. Right on. All right, buddy. Um, before we go, this will be in the show notes, but where can people find you online if you want people to find you online? Uh, I would say Twitter at John Gilmore, but my account got locked when they uh, disabled everybody with two-factor authentication and I can't unlock it. Oh. So I guess at John Gilmore on Twitter or on Facebook or BoardGameGeek. I'm uh, Jay Gilmore on BoardGameGeek. Um. Or, you know, add me on Facebook or send me messages or I'm kind of all over the place. Sometimes in the board game subreddit, I try to stalk around there as well. Hey, all right, man. Well, again, thank you so much for your time. This has been a lot of fun. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I'm glad it worked out and we were able to hook up. 
And so ends another evening of fine conversation. Thank you for spending time with us. Have safe travels, Wanderer. And remember, your table will be waiting the next time you stop by the corner of Story and Game.